Welcome to Center Church, and happy back-to-school weekend. Let's give a big round of applause for that, yeah. Hey, uh, whether you are a teacher or a student or a staff member or a homeschool parent, man, we love you. We're grateful for all that you do. We know that's an investment that you make, and we wanna bless you as you go back to school. So make sure before you leave, you stop by outside and you get your free Grit Coffee gift cards. We can send you back into the week caffeinated, okay? Because we want you to have a great start to uh, the weekend. Hey, if you're new, welcome. Lots of new people in Charlottesville at our church this time of year, so glad that you're here. One thing you should know about our church, um, if you are new, is that we really value relationships here. Okay, we really value relationships. And we say that because we mean it. It's not like when I'm on customer service and they put me on hold and they're like, we really value our customers. And it's like 45 minutes later and you're like, I don't think you actually value me. It's like, we really, really value relationships. Um, And here's why. The Bible says that we are created for community. Here's a deep thought to start the morning. Did you know that you're created in the image of God and God in his very nature is communal? You ever thought about that? One God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we are made in the image of a communal God, which is why we long for relationships. And here's what we all know practically, no matter kind of where you are in your faith journey, the quality and direction of your life will be determined by the relationships that you have, right? You've experienced that. Like if you had a great college experience, do you know why? Because you had great friends. Do you know, if you had a great high school experience, great friends. If you loved being a young adult, it's probably because you had great friends, right? The friendships that we have shape the quality and direction of our lives. But here's what we know, man, forming friendships can be kind of hard, can it? Like, I mean, would anybody here raise their hand and say, I've got too many good friends, too many, Josh, I'm tired of it, no more good friends. No, we all would like to have more meaningful friendships, but that can be hard to form, right? Especially if you're, man, a first-year student at UVA, and you're, you're trying to figure this whole thing out, and you don't know a lot of people, and you're, and you're trying to get established, or if you're a young adult who just started a new job in Charlottesville, and you're like, oh, man, I'm like working 55 hours a week, and I'm exhausted at the end of the day, I don't feel like I have the energy to build friendships. Maybe you're a parent, and you're like, man, I've got kids, and I don't really know a lot of other people with kids my age, and Man, it feels lonely and I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm not, allowed, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell anyone that I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Um, and so here's the thing. We wanna help you find and form meaningful relationships here at our church. We wanna help you find the kind of relationships that are gonna encourage you and help you and your family become what God desires you to be. And the first step in that process is an event called the Weekender. Okay, the Weekender is your one-stop shop for connection at our church. It is the inroad and the on-ramp to all things discipleship uh, that we do. It's really the way that you find your people at our church, okay? It's coming up September 16th and 17th, Saturday night, Sunday morning. We would love to have you join us so that we can help you take your first step, man, in finding those people that are gonna make this season of your life, man, a really fruitful one, a one that you look back on and you say, man, I loved my time in Charlottesville. I loved my time at Center Church, okay? So here's what I wanna do. I just wanna stop and pray that as we grow wider, wider and more and more people come on Sunday that we'd also grow deeper in our relationships. Would you pray that with me? God, you are a communal God. And so Lord, I thank you and I praise you for all the new faces and the new families that are coming around. We're so grateful for them. Um, But God, we also wanna be a church that is deep relationally as we grow wide uh, numerically. So Lord, would you help that to be the case? Would you help people here who are maybe lonely or or, um, isolated right now? Would you give them the courage to move towards relationships through the weekender? And would you just help us to be a church that continues to prioritize deep community uh, because it is what we are made for, God. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse one. Genesis 37, starting in verse one. If you're new, you picked a great Sunday to be here because we are starting a new series looking at the life of Joseph, okay? So you we're all gonna be new together because we haven't done this before. Quick show of hands, man, who's excited about studying Joseph? I'm excited about studying Joseph. Okay, a couple people. The rest of you should be, all right? Here's, here's why. Let me tell you why you should be excited about studying Joseph. Number one, 25% of the book of Genesis is devoted to his life. Think about that. Just for some context, 
Creation of the world and mankind's fall into sin gets three chapters. Joseph gets 14. That's more than Abraham. That's more than Isaac. That's more than Jacob. That's more than Noah. So there's apparently something very significant about Joseph. And and as we study, we're going to find out what that is. Uh, Number two, Joseph's a great guy to learn from. Here's the truth about Joseph's life. He handled both adversity and prosperity well. If you think about it, that's really all your life, right? You're either going to be like, things are going to be going great or things are going to be going terrible. And here's a secret that you'll discover as you get older. Both adversity and prosperity can corrupt your character. Sometimes when adversity comes into your life, it's like, this was the excuse I needed to imbibe all those bad habits. But sometimes the opposite is true. Man, you do well at work, you get the corner office, you get the big retirement fund, you've got the money, and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, I've kind of got access to things I didn't have access to before. See, what Joseph shows us is how we can walk faithfully with the Lord through both the hard seasons of our lives and the good seasons of our lives. So in that sense, Joseph is a fantastic model to learn from. But he's not just a model to learn from, he's also a lens to look through. Because Joseph, more than any other figure in the Old Testament, pictures and points to Jesus Christ. Scholars point out at least 50 different ways that Joseph is like and points us to the Lord Jesus. And so here's what that means. As we study Joseph, we will better understand Jesus. And really the main theme of Joseph's entire life, the main theme of this entire series is the theme of providence. Let's say providence together. Ready? Providence. We're going to be talking about providence a lot over the next five or six weeks. Here's what providence means. Providence means your life isn't random. Providence means that God is supernaturally and purposefully directing the events of your life towards his purposes. You see, Christians don't believe in happenstance or in circumstance. We believe in providence. Now, providence has two forms. There's what's known as pleasant providence, okay? Pleasant providence is when you apply for that job at that company you wanna work for and the hiring manager was in your sorority at UVA, right? Like that is pleasant providence. You get the job because you have a connection, right? You're like, oh yeah, praise the Lord. Uh, Pleasant providence is great. Uh, But there's also painful providence. Painful providence is, man, your parents split up. You don't get the job. You go through a season of unemployment. You go through a season of of health challenges. Man, you have a a major crisis or trauma that happens in, in your family. Man, that's painful providence. But what the scriptures tell us is God is orchestrating the good things and the hard things in our life to his purposes. I gotta be honest with you. I think providence is the hardest theological doctrine to actually believe in your life. And the reason I say that is because if we all believed in providence, if I believed in providence, guess what we would never do? Worry. You, just, you would just say, this has come through the hands of my father, I'm going to receive this. We wouldn't be devastated by disappointment. We wouldn't be so afraid of what people think about us. We wouldn't be constantly second guessing ourselves and should I have done this or should I have not? We would just receive it from the Lord, we would trust him and we would move forward. Providence is very difficult to believe at the street level, but guys, it is life-changing if you believe it. Because it allows you to face the ups and downs of life with fortitude. Because you know what providence means? When you are killing it, it makes you humble because you're like, man, I've worked hard, but God is the one who brought me here. And when things are really hard, it makes you hopeful because you say, even in this pain, God has a purpose. Here's my prayer. Here's our, our pastor's prayer for you over the next five or six weeks, that providence would move from your head down into your heart and it would make you humble in the good times and hopeful in the bad times. Humble in the good times and hopeful in the bad times. And the first place that we see the theme of providence show up in Joseph's life is in the midst of his dysfunctional family. Anybody got a dysfunctional family? You don't have to raise your hand, I'm just kidding. Anybody got a dysfunctional family? If you're like, I don't, they're probably sitting next to you, right? Like, like don't raise your hand. No, the truth is to some degree, we all have dysfunctional families. Well, Joseph had a dysfunctional family. His dad had four wives. 
That's three wives too many, okay? Uh, he had four wives. His dad had 13 kids by four different women. I mean, this is a reality TV show waiting to happen, okay? And as you can imagine, there was envy and there was backbiting and there was jealousy in this family. And it's really pretty, pretty bad. Um, and here's what we're gonna find. Joseph's life was shaped by his family of origin. I mean, you can't understand any of Joseph's life without understanding his family of origin, but he wasn't determined by it. And that's really good news for us today because here's the truth. Let's just be honest. You and I, we're shaped by our family of origin. Like you are dealt a certain amount of cards, right? If you had great parents, you've got a leg up. If, if you had bad parents or if you know, your dad abandoned you or you know, your, your parents are struggling or you had a really hard you know, brother or sister who's really struggling, like you, it's just harder for you. Right? We can't change the cards that we've been dealt, but what Joseph sh- Joseph's story shows us is that by the grace of God and through the providence of God, we don't have to be determined by the cards that we're dealt. You see, Genesis 37 is really one long illustration of this principle. You ready? The triumph of God's providence amidst a dysfunctional family. The triumph of God's providence amidst a very dysfunctional family. And here's why this is so important for us today, because we have the hardest time believing that God can change our families, don't we? I mean, aren't our families the one area where like, God could never do anything there? He could never change him. He could never change her. I'll always be this way. They'll always be that way. Man, and what we see in Joseph's life is that, man, God's providence is going to supersede even the hardest things that he experiences for good. And if God's providence can do that in his life, his providence can do it in our life. All right, so we're just gonna walk through. We're gonna see how dysfunctional this family is, and then we're gonna see the providence of God over uh, superseding it. So let's jump into this and look at this reality TV show of a family, okay? Verse one, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. You said, Josh, I thought we were talking about Joseph. Okay, we are. You can't really understand Joseph's life without understanding Jacob's life. So you see that phrase, these are the generations of? That phrase recur, occurs 10 different times in Genesis, and it tells us that we're entering into a new part of the Genesis story. Over the next 14 chapters, we're gonna learn a lot about Joseph, but ultimately everything that we learn about Joseph is about Jacob. Let me explain. So chapter three of the book of Genesis, the entire book of Genesis is moving towards one climax, God says, I'm going to bring a savior into the world to solve this mess. I'm gonna bring a savior into the world who's going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And in Genesis 12, he tells Abraham that savior's coming through your family. And in each generation, the promise gets passed on to a different person. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac, and it goes from Isaac to Jacob. So you would assume that it now goes from Jacob to Joseph, right? That's what you would think. It doesn't go to Joseph. In fact, it goes to Joseph's dirtbag brother, Judah. Okay, and if you want a picture of how shady Judah is, read chapter 38 in your Bible this week. Okay, if you've ever been reading Genesis and you're like, why is chapter 38 in here? It's because Judah is the guy who gets the promise. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. All of Joseph's life, all the things that happened to him, his, his being sold into slavery, his being falsely accused, his being elevated to the palace, his being given status and power and influence, all of it was about saving his family from starvation so Jesus Christ could be born one day. Here's what we learned from Joseph's life, and and this is really important because this applies to our life as well. You ready? Joseph's life was about something bigger than him, and your life is about something bigger than you. Joseph's life was about something bigger than him, and your life is about something bigger than you. This is so important for us to hear in this cultural moment because for thousands of years, human beings found their meaning from three primary institutions, the family, the church, and the state. And since the Industrial Revolution, all three of those institutions have been marginalized in our society. So a lot of people live far away from their families and are estranged from them, right? Maybe that's your story. Man, a lot of people have left the church and they don't understand their identity in terms of God's divine plan and patriotism is, is, is at an all-time low, really. And so in a world that we don't have family, church, or state, where do we look for identity and meaning? Well, what's filled that vacuum is self-expression. 
And so kind of the modern cultural moment would say like your meaning in life is to pursue your personal potential, your personal fulfillment, your personal happiness, right? See every Disney movie ever, okay? But here's the problem. That isn't a sufficient source of meaning to support the weight of your soul. And you know this, you know this. Because every time you think that new product is going to make you satisfied, it doesn't. And every, every time you think that boyfriend is gonna finally make you feel like you have purpose, he doesn't. And every time you think, if I just get that job, if I just get married, if we just have kids, if we just get the house, if I just get to the next stage, guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't satisfy you. Because we were not created to sustain the weight of our souls through personal experiences and pleasures. We just weren't. Guys, God made you for something so much bigger and so much more important than your next trip to Portland and your next craft beer. He made you for something so much more important for that than that. He made you to play a part in his redemptive purposes in the world. You see, Providence says, you don't live where you live or work where you work or go to school where you go to school on accident. But God has you there for a reason because God wants to work through you to accomplish his purposes in the world. And if you get that, it will help you push through the hard times in your life. Let me, take, let me just give you an example, parenting, right? If you think that the purpose of your life is to fulfill your personal fulfillment, your personal potential and to be happy personally and to always get to do what you wanna do, don't have children because they'll crush you. Because guess what your kids don't care about? Your, your personal potential. They don't care. They don't care about your pleasure or what you wanna do. They don't. And if you think that's what your life is about, they'll crush you and you'll hate being a parent and you'll constantly feel guilty about it. But if that's not what you think, if you think, man, God has called me into this season as a parent, meant to equip my kids with the, with the word of truth, to help them put on the full armor of God so that one day I can send them out into the world as warriors of righteousness and of truth, now you can endure. And now there's purpose and meaning and perspective for the next 10 years of your life that are not gonna have a whole lot of personal fulfillment and personal pleasure and personal travel. Okay, Joseph's life was about something so much bigger than him. And your life is about something so much bigger than you. All right, verse two. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, it's just another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. I'll explain what that means in a second. And he made him a robe of many colors, the famous robe. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we're introduced to Joseph when he's a young man. So he's 17, so he's younger than most of the people in this room. And we realize right away that he comes from a very dysfunctional family. Um, first, there's a lack of trust in this family. Do you see what he does? He brings a bad report about his brothers back to his dad. He did that for one of two regions. Uh, number one, he was a snitch, okay? So that might be it. It's a theological term. Uh, he was a snitch. Um, or number two, his father didn't trust his son, so he told them, hey, go and watch them and come inform. Right, either way, there's no trust in this family, and you know this from your own family, from your workplace, from teams you've been on. Trust is the foundation of any healthy community, okay? So there's no trust in this family. But second, and, and more importantly, and, and what is focused on more, is that this family is rife with favoritism. We're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other children because Joseph was the child of his old age. What does that mean? Well, like I told you earlier, Jacob had four wives, and that's three too many again. Uh, but he had a favorite wife. Her name was Rachel, and, and she was a sweetheart. She was beautiful and formative in appearance. Um, but Rachel had a hard time conceiving children. And so after many, many years of not being able to conceive children, finally, Jacob and Rachel were able to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Who do you think that son was? Joseph. A couple years later, Rachel conceives again and gives birth to Benjamin, but she dies in the birth process. So you can see how Jacob would transfer his affection from Rachel, his sweetheart, who died onto Rachel's firstborn, Joseph, right, who, who reminds Jacob of her. 
right? The problem is that Jacob is not subtle with his favoritism, right? Jacob creates this multicolored robe and he gives it to Joseph to just be like, hey, if anyone's wondering, if anybody has any questions, he's my favorite son. You know, it's like, you remember MySpace? Anybody remember MySpace? And you had to have your top eight friends, right? And you had your favorite friend. It was like, this is my favorite friend, okay? So that is Joseph and his family. He's the favorite son. Everybody under 30, I just lost you. You're like, my what, Josh? It was a thing, okay? Um, anyway, so that's what happened. So what is, this, what is this robe all about? Well, there's really three big things that it signifies. Number one, it indicates that Jacob intended to make Joseph his his heir rather than his firstborn Reuben. Now imagine, imagine you're one of four sisters and your parents sit you down one day and you go, hey guys, we just wanna let you know we wrote up our will, we're leaving everything to Maggie, go and enjoy your life. <laughs> You'd be like, how are we gonna get along anymore? If like you've just kind of, you've jumped out of order, you're not splitting up equally, you're just giving it all to Maggie, right? That's, that's kind of what happened. Jacob's basically saying, hey guys, he's my favorite, I'm gonna give him the inheritance. You're like, okay. Um, number two, the robe was a status symbol. Okay, it, it set Joseph apart as special, right? It was multicolored, it was dyed with expensive dyes. I mean, it was a status symbol. It'd kind of be like if you rolled up in like a Range Rover or a Tesla, okay? Like, that's not wrong, it's just a symbol. It's a symbol of your financial situation, right? Like, okay, you, you, you're the kind of person who can drive a Range Rover, that's fine. It's not wicked, it's just a status symbol, right? That's what this coat was. Some of you are like, I drove up in a Range Rover. <laughs> um, let's talk later. Anyway, um, number three, it meant that Joseph wasn't doing manual labor. He wouldn't do manual labor. So all of his brothers were blue collar shepherds, right? They weren't wearing multicolored robes to go out and you know, move sheep around the wilderness and work in the mud and all the stuff. They're wearing very simple clothing. And here comes Joseph in Gucci, okay? That's what's going on. They're wearing Carhartt, he's wearing Gucci, right? And he's holding a clipboard reporting on them. Okay, you don't have to have a PhD in child psychology to see where this is going, right? Like they hate him. It says that they hate him so much that they cannot even speak peaceably about him. Here's the principle that we see in this text. You ready? Favoritism poisoned this family. Favoritism poisoned this family and favoritism will poison your family. Right, you, you might be a part of a dysfunctional family and anytime I talk about family, you could apply this to your church, to your group of friends, to your workplace. I mean, all, anywhere you're in community, these principles work. Favoritism always poisons community. And some of you have experienced that, right? Because you're, you're part of a family that favoritism is just part of the culture. So like your sister got a new car when she was 16 and you're still driving the 2004 Honda CRV, right? Like, hey, praise, I've got a CRV, it's great. But you know, it's no Tesla, right? Um, or, you know, like there, you know these loyalty lines, the battle lines that I'm talking about? It's like every time there's an argument, everybody moves into their battle lines. And it's like, you go with mom, he goes with dad, right? Oh, I'm on uncle, team Uncle Joe, and I'm on team Aunt Sue. You guys have seen this a million times. Like favoritism just sows discord and sows dysfunction in, in a family. And you see that illustrated constantly in the Old Testament. You see it in Jacob's, if you go and read Jacob's life, you see it in Abraham's life. Favoritism always poisons community. It's why in James chapter two, James explicitly forbids favoritism or partiality in the church. He says, look, you can't build meaningful community if you're playing favorites, so don't play favorites. So one point of application with this would be don't play favorites, right? So like with your kids or at work or on your team or whatever, just don't play favorites. And I think we would all like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, let me write that down, Josh. That's a good idea. Um, but here's what I'd say is maybe the, the more challenging point of applications. I would say this, don't play favorites. Also, stop trying to be the favorite, right? You're like, oh, man, you know, like... Because when we say like, don't play favorites, we feel like the victim, right? But how easy is it to be like, no one should play favorites and then to spend so much time and energy trying to be the center of attention and trying to be known and noticed in every environment that we go into. I need my boss to think I'm doing well. 
I need to be the center of this room. I need to, I need to share things on social media that get likes and get favorites, right? It's easy to say nobody should play favorites and then to try to be the favorite and by doing so, poison the community that you're in. You see, the world says, strive to express yourself. Strive to be the center of attention. Let everybody know about you, right? Be known and be noticed. And do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ says? It says, put the interests of other people before yourself. Rather than coming into a room and saying, here I am, man, come into a room and say, there you are. And instead of saying, I wanna be known and I wanna be noticed, man, just, just resolve yourself to know and notice other people. A, a community of people all striving to be the center of attention is miserable. It's always gonna create envy and jealousy and backbiting and gossip. But a community of people where everyone is striving to serve one another and put the interests of others before themselves, man, that's a beautiful community. That's the kind of community that you wanna be a part of. That's the kind of church that we want to build here. So here's, here's what we see, man. In, in Joseph's family, it was partly dysfunctional because, man, dad played favorites. And that's true in our communities as well. Um, okay, in verse five through 11, Jacob has two dreams. And dreams play a big role in, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph, in Joseph's life. He has two dreams. Then he interprets two dreams while he's in prison. And then he interprets two dreams for Pharaoh. And that's how he's elevated from prison to the palace. So for the sake of time, let me summarize verses five through 11. Okay, in dream number one, Joseph and his brothers are out in the field binding grain when suddenly his grain stands upright and all of their grain bows down before his grain. Okay, that's dream number one. Dream number two, Joseph is standing and the sun and moon representing his mom and dad and 11 stars representing his 11 brothers are bowing down to him. Guys, you do not need to go to seminary to interpret that dream, right? Like, like this dream is about Joseph being exalted in the midst of his family. It was very clear. That's why everyone got so mad, right? So if you look at verse eight, this is, this is how his brothers responded to this dream that he shared. His brothers hated him even more. So before they couldn't even speak peacefully, that's how much they, apparently they hate him even more now because he's told them this dream. And even verse 10, it says this, his father, who, you know, played favorites, rebuked him. So even his father doesn't like this dream. Now, it's fair to ask the question, was this the most prudent thing for Joseph to do? You know, hey guys, guess what I dream? You know, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But I think a more important question is this, where did this dream come from? Where did this dream come from? These dreams, I guess. Well, we learn later that these dreams are from the Lord. They're from the Lord. You see, before God's people had the written down word of God, he often spoke to them in prophetic dreams. So Jacob, for instance, had two or three prophetic dreams in his life. Abraham had prophetic dreams. And now we have Joseph having prophetic dreams. This was divine revelation from God. So here's what we find. Joseph shares God's divine revelation with his family and his family doesn't like it. And they even, they even reject it. And they say, oh, we'll see. We'll, will, we really be bow, will we really bow down before you and you be exalted? We'll see about that. Guys, here's the principle. Joseph's family disagreed about God's revelation. One of the reasons they were dysfunctional is because they didn't believe the same things about God's word. Man, that was true for their family and that'll be true for your family. Any significant relationship that you're in, whether you're dating someone or you're married or you're trying to raise kids or it's your parents or honestly, even just like in a community, if you disagree about God's word, you're gonna have conflict. Like if, if you wanna do money God's word and she does God's way and she doesn't, get ready for conflict. Like if you wanna raise the kids in the church and he doesn't, get ready for conflict, right? If you wanna honor God with your sexuality and your boyfriend doesn't, get ready for conflict. Okay, this is for some of you, it's not for all of you, but for some of you, I think this is the issue in your current romantic relationship and you know it. It's like you believe one thing about the word of God and he or she believes something else about the word of God and you're always butting heads over this. Can I just give you some pastoral advice? Dissolve that issue or dissolve the relationship. 
because you're setting yourself up for heartache. Because I've seen this too many times as a pastor. It's, you're like, yeah, I'm sure he'll come around. Like he believes in God and he'll go to church with me when I ask. And then you get married. And then three years down the road, you have a hard time understanding why he wants to get divorced. And you're like, I thought that we weren't getting divorced. I thought, and he's like, well, I don't believe the Bible is, you know, I wanna get divorced now. I fell out of love with you. You have no recourse. I've had too many counseling situations where that's happening. Or it's like, all right, we got married and he was kind of into the Lord, but not really. And now we have kids and now they're confused because man, dad doesn't care and mom does or mom doesn't care and dad does, right? It's just like, save yourself a lot of heartache now by just saying, look, hey, we're either gonna agree on the authority of God's word in our lives or we're gonna dissolve this relationship. Guys, the truth is we all have to make a decision about final authority in life. Everybody does. This is really helpful to understand. If you're a student at UVA, if you're a graduate, like at the end of the day, your worldview will be determined by what your final authority is. And there's really four options, okay? Option number one is self. Self is the final authority. Whatever I think, whatever I feel, whatever I want is my final authority. So if it's my truth, I'm gonna live out my truth and you can't critique my truth. And that's, that's kind of garden variety, our culture right now. Like you just do you, you follow your truth. Uh, the second option is society. Society is your highest authority. That's like, hey, whatever culture says in this moment, even if culture is saying something different now than it was saying last year, man, whatever culture is saying, I wanna be on the right side of history, whatever that means. I wanna be on the right side of history, so whatever the culture influencers are saying, I'm gonna say it. That's society. Uh, number three is celebrity, right? Whatever like the athletes and the musicians and the professors and the authors, whatever the people that I look up to, whatever they're saying, I'm just gonna say whatever they're saying is true. Um, or the, the last option is scripture. And you say, whatever God's word says is my final authority. Man, Joseph's family was dysfunctional because they disagreed about the authority of God's word. And, and for you, this might be why your family has so much conflict. Because man, you're trying to follow Christ, but your parents are like, what are you doing? Why do you wanna go on a summer, summer mission trip? Like, why would you ever wanna do something when you could go to the beach? Why do you wanna take that week and go to, go to Puerto Rico to serve? Like, why would you do that? It's like, man, because I have a different authority in my life. This, this might be the issue in your romantic relationship. Like I said, this might be the, the challenge right now in your community of friends. So I just encourage you, man, get on the same page about what you believe about the word of God because that's gonna lay a foundation for healthy community in the future, okay? All right, look at verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their fl father's flock near Shechem and Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent it from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. What a great phrase. It's like me at Lowe's, you know, just wandering around. Uh, maybe I'll find it. <laughs> and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, here's the question. Why is this random section in here? That's a really good question to ask of the Bible. Like, this is a total digression. Why didn't the author just be like, his dad sent him and he, and he found him at Shechem? Like, why include, he's like wandering around, he doesn't know what he's doing, this unnamed man that we don't know anything about finds him, happens over here and says, oh, actually, they went on to Dothan. Why include this? Um, well, this, all the scholars agree that the author is pointing us to God's providence in Joseph's life, that God's invisible hand was directing all the events of his life. This is a wild thought experiment. In some ways, our hope for salvation depends on this unnamed man finding Joseph. Think about it. Dothan's 12 miles away. There's no way that Joseph is finding his brothers if this guy doesn't find him. So think about it. Joseph doesn't get to Dothan. He doesn't find his brothers. If he doesn't find his brothers, they don't sell him into slavery. If they don't sell him into slavery, he doesn't become the master of Potiphar's house. He's not the master of Potiphar's house. He doesn't get put into prison. 
He's not in prison. He can't interpret the dreams for the butler and for the, the baker. If he doesn't interpret the dreams, he can't interpret Pharaoh's dreams. If he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he doesn't become second in command. If he's not second in command, he can't save up all the grain. If he can't save up all the grain, he can't save his family from starvation. If he can't save his family from starvation, Jesus Christ is never born. The hope of the world is based on unnamed man finding Joseph in a field. Right? So from one perspective, you're like, that was close. You know, like, get the guy a GPS, right? Um, and yet, what the, author's, what the author's saying is like, it was never close. It was never close. The invisible hand of God was like, Joseph is directionally challenged. Let's bring this guy along and have him here and have him direct. Um, the author's pointing to God's providence in Joseph's life. And the truth is, God's providence is also at work in your life. Also at work in your life. I think it's incredibly comforting to realize that your life isn't the result of random chance. That, that your future is not just based on the chaotic coming together of forces that are, that are bigger than you. That the people that you're gonna interact with tomorrow, that the job that you have, that the place where you study, that the neighborhood that you're in isn't random, but it's according to providence. It's because God wants you there for a purpose. The great Charles Spurgeon used to say that providence was the pillow that he laid his head on at night. Man, because he believed I'm not just here on accident, but I'm here because it has been divinely orchestrated man, by my heavenly father. I think that's really encouraging for you because it means that man, when you look at the future, you don't have to be filled with anxiety because it's not out of control. Man, God brought you this far and he's gonna lead you into it. As you look around at your present circumstances, even if they're not the circumstances that you wanted, man, they're not a waste. Man, God has you where he has you in this season so that you can accomplish his purposes. And here's a, here's a fun way to think about this. <laughs> Who's around you that's just sort of wandering? You know what I'm talking about? Who is the wandering person in the field in your life that needs some direction? What if the entire purpose of your life is to give some direction to somebody who's wandering around right now? I mean, this unnamed guy played a massive role in redemptive history because he was like, this guy needs some help. Let me, you know, like, let me bring you along here. Makes you think of Henrietta Mears. You guys have never heard of Henrietta Mears. She was a woman of God who is the director of Sunday school at um, Hollywood Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, California, like in the, in the 50s and 60s. And she was an incredible teacher of God's word and she would host these youth conferences. And there was a student that came to one of her conferences and he was in a uh, crisis of faith. And he was doubting the inerrancy of God's word and he wasn't sure if he believed in it. And, and so Henrietta just walked him through it and walked through the arguments and why you can believe in it and why it's trustworthy. And after spending two or three days with Henrietta, man, that young man walked away like confident in the word of God. Um, that young man's name was Billy Graham. You've never heard of Henrietta Mears. You know who Henrietta Mears was? She saw someone that was wandering. And she said, let me give you some direction. And Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people than anyone else in the history of the world. So who's around you right now that's wandering that you could be the person that comes alongside of him and says, let's go this way. And you have no idea what kind of impact it could make in redemptive history. And the providence of God, man, gives us peace for the future and it gives us an incredible amount of purpose right now in our presence. Providence teaches you to view all of life as a divine appointment rather than random coincidence. All right, here's verse 18. They, his brothers, saw him from afar. How'd they see him? That goofy coat he's wearing. They could see him, you know, coming from far away. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Man. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Do you notice they won't even use his name? You know your family's gotten really dysfunctional when you won't use personal names anymore. That's your uncle. That's your brother. All right, it's easier to hate people that we distance ourselves from. So that's what's going on here. They're like, here comes that dreamer. They won't even use his name, Joseph. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what become of his dreams. You see that they're resisting God's word. But when Reuben, um, who they would later name a sandwich after, heard it, uh, 
Just having fun up here. Uh, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand, hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Um, notice what happens. The group think is taking over. This group of brothers are stirring one another up. Man, that the hate is getting more and more intense. One says, man, we should attack him and take that coat. Another says, we should attack him and take that coat and throw him in a pit. Another one's like, let's just kill him. Let's just, we'll be, let's just be done with it. And then we can tell dad, you know, all these, and there's like momentum building. And then look what happens in verse 21. Reuben, the firstborn, stands up and he exerts godly influence in the family. He says, ah, let's calm down. Let's not do that. He says, hey, put him in this pit. And Reuben's plan the whole time is, I'll come back, I'll get him out and I'll, and I'll take him home. Okay, so keep that in mind as we read, read the rest of this narrative because here's what happens. We're told later that Reuben at this point leaves. We don't know why, but like he goes to tend the sheep or something else and then all this happens. So keep that in mind. 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. So this pit was a cistern. So cisterns were used, they're like 10 to 20 feet deep. They're used to hold water back in the day, but there was a crack in the cistern and it couldn't hold water anymore. It would be either a trash heap or a prison or both. And so probably Joseph gets thrown into a 15-foot hole full of trash, okay? So this is like not a good day. Um, verse 25, then they sat down to eat. Why is that detail in there? I think the author is just making the point of the depravity of humankind. I mean, isn't it true that like in one moment we can do something horrible and then the next moment we can just turn and act like everything's normal? I mean, doesn't that explain a lot of like our family interactions? It's like, everybody's gossiping and slandering one another. And then, oh, Aunt Sue, how you doing? You know, like, come in, you're like, let's eat Thanksgiving dinner and act like it's all fine, even though we're just, man, just nasty with one another. I mean, the, the Bible's just very honest about human nature. It's like, man, we have the ability to do something horrible and then turn around in the next moment and just eat lunch, like everything's normal. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So this is a trading caravan. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. What a nice guy. And his brothers, this is important, and his brothers listened to him. Who's influencing the group now? Judah, right? In verse 26, it's not Reuben, it's Judah. Judah appeals to the whole group. He says, brothers, let's sell Joseph as a slave. Look, if we just kill him, we don't get anything out of it, but let's sell him as a slave. Man, then we'll see how he likes doing hard manual labor and we'll get money and we can do what we want with that. Man, in verse 21, Reuben restrained the evil of the family. In verse 26, Judah inflamed the evil of the family. Here's what we learn. The culture of a family is often determined by the leadership of an individual. The culture of a family is often determined by the leadership of an individual or individuals. The power of an individual to influence a group is illustrated again and again and again in the books of First and Second Kings. Okay, if you want a summary of those books, here it is. King X was wicked and the people were wicked. <laughs> King Y was righteous and the people were righteous. It's just one long illustration of the power of one man or one woman who is righteous and who stands up for truth and the influence that that can have on not just a community, but on a nation. And then in the New Testament, Peter actually intensifies this principle because he says, if you're in Christ, you are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Do you know what the priests were responsible for in the Old Testament? The spiritual well-being of the whole nation. The priests were supposed to model the life of a fervent worshiper. Their lives and their actions were supposed to raise the spiritual temperature of everyone around them. And Peter says, that's you now. That's you now. 
Here's what this text is showing us. You really have one of three options. You can be Reuben and make things better. You can be Judah and make things worse. Or you can be one of the brothers and just go along for the ride. Let me ask you, what would it look like in your life if you just resolved yourself to being Reuben? And you said, in my community of friends, I'm gonna make things better. In my family, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop this dysfunctional relationship that we all have. I'm gonna work to make things better. At my job, I'm gonna make things better. What if every single person in our church resolved themselves to be Reuben and just said, I'm not gonna complain. I'm not gonna criticize. I'm not gonna coast. I'm gonna create and cultivate. Oh man, I think that'd be a powerful church. Honestly, one of, the, one of the first steps you can do if you wanna change the world, if you wanna make an impact in your generation, one of the best things you can do is resolve yourself to say, in every environment I'm in, I'm gonna make it better. I'm gonna be Reuben, man, I'm not gonna be Judah. Because what we see in the Old Testament, what we see in the New Testament, what we see throughout the history of the church is that one man or one woman who lives righteously and that stands up for truth can galvanize an entire community of people to faithfulness. Reuben restrained the evil, Judah, unfortunately, inflamed the evil. And the result was that Joseph was sold into slavery. Look at verse 28. Then Midianite traders, that's the same thing as the Ishmaelites, two different names for the same group of people, passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Um, so the, the deepest pain that Joseph experiences in his life comes at the hand of his family. And that's true for a lot of us, right? Like probably, if I had to guess, probably the deepest pain you've ever experienced, the greatest betrayal, the greatest hurt, the greatest abuse is probably at the, at the hands of your family. Um, and so when we're talking about dysfunctional families, it's helpful to talk a little bit about suffering so we sort of know how to think about it. The Bible says that suffering has one of three sources in your life, okay? Um, some suffering comes from Adam, okay? What, by that I mean, when Adam and Eve, when Adam sinned in the garden, it brought brokenness and suffering into the world. So for instance, cancer and hurricanes didn't exist before Adam sinned, but that's some of the consequences of his sin. So you might be suffering or your family might be suffering because of Adam's sin. Um, some suffering comes into your life because of your sin, right? So sin has consequences. And so when we sin, we reap what we sow. You can be forgiven through the work of Christ, but that doesn't mean all of the consequences are undone. So if you neglect your kids for a decade, they're probably not gonna want a relationship with you when they're teenagers, right? So that's just like sin and suffering. Um, and then the third, the third reason that we suffer is because people sin against us, right? And that's Joseph's situation. He didn't earn this. He didn't deserve this. God wasn't punishing him for anything. It was just his wicked, sinful brothers sinning against him. And now he is experiencing deep pain and deep betrayal. And that might be you. You might be here today and you might be in a season of suffering. You might have a really hard situation. And it's nothing that you did. It's something that your dad did. Man, he abandoned the family when you were five. And your poor mom has been trying to strap and make it work. And man, you haven't had a lot of the advantages that other people have. And you haven't had, man, a, a good earthly father. So you have a hard time believing you have a good heavenly father. Right? It, it could be because you had an abusive relative. I mean, it could be because your brother is an addict and it's just gobbled up all the family resources and emotion and it's just, I don't know, right? But what you might just need to hear today is like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Because what I've found pastorally is that most people that come from really dysfunctional families who have a lot of pain and hurt blame themselves. And they say, what did I do to make dad leave? Or how did I contribute to this? Or, or is God punishing, punishing me for something? And the answer is no. Like it's, it's very likely that you're like Joseph. You didn't deserve this. You didn't earn it. God's not punishing you. You're just feeling the effects of your family's sin. And the Bible is, is really, really honest about the hardship of life. It's not like a fluffy book that just like floats above the surface, like you know, the Bhagavad Gita or something like that. I mean, it's real. 
And I think that's good news because that means if you're walking through suffering, if you're walking through hardship, then the Bible is for you. But what the Bible also shows us, especially in this passage, is even in the midst of great suffering, even in the midst of being betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers, God's plan is still working. The invisible hand of God is still present. I'm gonna show that to you in a minute. So verse 29 through 35, let me summarize. Reuben comes back. He realizes what's happened. He, he tears his clothes and he, and he mourns. And then the brothers have to decide how we can explain this to dad. And so they take uh, Joseph's robe and they dip it in blood and then they send it back to their dad, Jacob. And they say, hey, can you identify this? We found this in the wilderness. And uh, Jacob sees the robe, it's dipped in blood. And he assumes a wild animal has attacked my son and, and killed him. And he enters into 20 years of mourning, 20 years of mourning. Guys, the next 20 years of this family's existence are defined by this one family secret. Man, how many of our families are defined by the family secret? You know what I'm talking about? It's like, there's an elephant in the corner, there's a snake under the rug, there's a skeleton in the closet. Why do we have so many phrases for this? You know, like, right? It's just like, it explains everything. It explains why mom and dad can't get along. It explains why Uncle Joe always leaves early from everything. It explains the sarcasm and cynicism. Oh, that's rich coming from you. Right, there's like the family secret that nobody's allowed to tell and the kids like kinda understand. You're like, I don't, did, did dad have an affair? Is that what happened? Like did, like, did Carol, did, did they get pregnant before they got married? Is that why they got married? So, right, like it, it's all these things. You're not allowed to talk about it. And, and oftentimes the family secret is the source of the family dysfunction. So what we're gonna see in, in Joseph's family is that the, the family dysfunction is not gonna stop until the family secret is exposed and healed. And so a word for some of you is that like, it might be that the first step towards healing is you've got to find a way to bring the family secret out into the light and you've got to invite Jesus Christ to come into it and to expose it for what it is and to also bring the healing power of the gospel into it. Because as long as that family secret's there, ah, the family dysfunction is probably gonna persist just like it did in Joseph's family. So that's, you know, you get to verse 36 and it's horrible. You know, it's like, this is the most depressing back to school weekend sermon I've ever heard, Josh. Like your family might sell you into slavery, you know? <laughs> Go and be blessed. Um, but verse 36 gives us just a hint of hope. And I, I, don't wanna, I wanna point you to it. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph was marched down against his will and sold in Egypt. I mean, a place he'd never been among a people he didn't know. But even as Joseph was suffering at the hands of his dysfunctional family, we see God's providence at work. Because did you see who Joseph was bought by? Potiphar, who's Potiphar? Potiphar was, an, was a powerful man in Egypt. He was one relationship removed from Pharaoh. And over the next 10 chapters, God is going to use Joseph's relationship with Potiphar as the avenue by which to elevate Joseph to power in Egypt. You see, if we're going to understand Joseph's life theologically, what it means for us, and we have to answer an important question. Here it is. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? And at one level, he was sold into slavery because of his family's sin. But at another level, he was sold into slavery for his family's salvation. You see, Psalm 105 says that it was God who sent Joseph into Egypt, that God sent him ahead so that he could provide for his family in the famine. You see, if it is anything at all, Genesis 37 is one long illustration of the triumph of God's providence in the midst of a dysfunctional family. No matter how hard the brothers tried, they could not thwart God's purposes and they actually ended up serving them. And if God's providence can triumph in this dysfunctional family, then God's providence can triumph 
in yours as well. Because you might be here and you might feel like Joseph this morning. You might be dealing with the fallout of a dysfunctional family. Maybe you moved to Charlottesville to get away from your dysfunctional family. Maybe the reason that you're so excited to go back to school is you're like, I just need to get away from my family. I just can't deal with that environment. Or maybe you're in a season of suffering. Maybe you're suffering because of Adam's sin. Maybe you're suffering because of your own sin. Maybe you're suffering because of sin that's been done against you. And you're just like, I don't know if I can go on and why would God allow this to happen? Or maybe you're marching into your own version of Egypt, a place you've never been before with a bunch of people that you don't know and the future seems really uncertain and, it's, and you're just filled with anxiety and you're like, what's, what's gonna happen? So here's the question. Where do you find faith to believe that God is still with you when you're going through that? Where do, you, where, where do you find faith to believe that God is still with you and God is still good when you're marching into Egypt? Well, you find it by looking through Joseph to the truer and better Joseph, Jesus Christ. I mean, chapter 37 is full of pointers to the Lord Jesus. Joseph was the beloved son of his father. He was betrayed by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver, and he was sent into suffering so that one day he could save his family. Man, Jesus Christ is the beloved son of the father as well, who was betrayed by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver and was sent into suffering so that one day he could save his spiritual family. Joseph was stripped of his robe and thrown into a pit by his adversaries. Jesus Christ was stripped of his robe and hung on a cross by his. Joseph was marched to Egypt as a slave. Jesus was marched to Calvary as a sacrifice. But here's the important difference. Joseph didn't choose his path, but Jesus did. In eternity past, God the Father looked at God the Son and said the only way that we can save this dysfunctional race is if you're willing to march into Egypt on their behalf. And Jesus said, I'm willing. Jesus Christ marched to the cross to pay for our sins. So that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter how dysfunctional your family is, you too can be forgiven and you can be redeemed and you can be made new. You see, you find fortitude to believe that God is still with you as you march into Egypt by fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ who already marched into Egypt on your behalf. And so I wanna end today, to, end today by doing something a little bit different. Um, I wanna end today by praying for those of us in this room that are in a Joseph moment. We've got four categories of people and I'm just warning you right now, I'm gonna ask you after this to stand up and get prayed for, so get ready for that, all right? It's very powerful in the 915 service. Um, if you're here and you have a dysfunctional family, and you're just feeling that right now. In just a minute, I'm gonna ask you to stand so that we can pray for healing for you. Um, if you're in a season of suffering, for any, any reason, you're in a season of suffering and you just, you need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In just a second, I'm gonna ask you to stand and we're gonna pray for you. Um, if you're headed into an unknown season of life and you've never done this before and you don't know anybody and, and you're kind of filled with anxiety and worry about it, you don't know, and, and you need peace, I'm gonna ask you to stand and we're gonna pray for you. And then if you just have a loved one, somebody you care about that would fit into one of those categories, then I want you to stand. We just wanna pray for them on your behalf. Okay, so here's the four categories. Dysfunctional family, season of suffering, unknown, scary situation, or just somebody that you care about. Would you stand right now all across the room? Would you just stand so that we can pray for you? Come on, stand up, stand up. I love it, I love it. And if you're next to somebody who's standing, would you just put a hand on them? You just put a hand on them? And join me in just praying that the reality of God's providence would be a great comfort to us in this season. Let's pray. Lord God, 
we know how painful a dysfunctional family can be. So I pray for all the men and women in this room who are standing because, man, they just have a broken family. They have a dysfunctional family, they have a painful family. But we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work healing deep in their souls and that even if they don't have a good earthly father, they would know they have a good, perfect heavenly father and they have a church family that loves them, that wants to, wants to bring them in. Father, I pray for all those who are suffering right now. For whatever reason, they're suffering and they don't know if they can go on and they're asking, why would you let this happen to me? God, I pray that you'd fill them with comfort. You're the God of all comfort. Pray that they would know that you know what it's like to suffer, that you are the son of suffering. Do not stay insulated from the suffering of this world, but you came into this world and you suffered with us. I pray they'd feel your comfort. Lord, I pray for all the people walking into new seasons of life and they don't know what to expect and they're full of anxiety and fear. God, I pray that you fill them with the peace that comes from knowing that you are with them no matter the circumstances. And Lord, I pray for all those who are standing on behalf of someone they love, that God, you would work in their loved one's life and you would work through them so that their loved ones can feel your care. God, give us faith to believe that you are able to redeem and to heal and to work through even the most broken families, even the most broken relationships, even the most broken lives like ours. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. If you'd stand with us, now we're just gonna sing a song of faith that says, I don't always know, God, what you're doing, but I know what you've done, and so I can persevere.